and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach, and I founded a company called Strong Skills. At Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And today's guest is actually going to talk about culture and leadership and teamwork throughout our conversation. And he validates a lot of what we believe as it relates to Strong Skills. We believe that these skills give organizations and people an unfair advantage to perform better. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. The teachings come from my book, which came out last October. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then I know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased and I've been overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Additionally, I run an accelerator program which involves one-on-one coaching and a group experience where we have monthly Zoom calls, a retreat. It's really an incredible group of people that I get to call clients. These executives are interested in growing, learning, and figuring out how they can lead and perform better. The current accelerator is full, but if you're interested in learning more about a future group, feel free to email me. My email is brian at strongskills.co. That's brian at strongskills.co. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of our previous conversations, it would mean the world to us if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. You won't believe how many people find us via iTunes and find the podcast and our amazing guests through that platform. So please help us expand our reach. And thanks to all of you who have already done so. Let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. I'm grateful for Dan Simons on multiple fronts. Number one, his restaurant group has amazing food. 
and I've been fortunate enough to dine in many of their spots here in the Washington, D.C. area. And so number one, I love good food. I love great company. Dan's restaurants often are the place to go for great company to enjoy great food. Secondly, Dan is somebody who cares deeply about justice and humanity, and that is going to come across in this conversation. And a bit about Dan, if you're unfamiliar with his background, he is the co-owner of the innovative Farmers Restaurant Group, which is majority owned by American Family Farmers. And he's going to explain a little bit more about that partnership. They are on a mission to earn farmers a larger share of the food dollar while delivering thoughtfully sourced, scratch-made food and exceptional hospitality. Farmers Restaurant Group operates seven restaurants and one distillery throughout the D.C., Maryland, Virginia, and Pennsylvania area. And most recently, they pivoted their business model to include a founding farmer's market and grocery, where they sell everything from prepared dinners and hand sanitizer made in their D.C. distillery, to founding spirits, to homemade chocolates, and bottled cocktails. Obviously, the last year and a half has been challenging for restaurateurs like Dan, and he's going to talk about some of those challenges in this conversation. He's passionate about the health of the planet and the environment, and he founded the nonprofit Our Last Straw, a business-led coalition working to reduce our reliance on single-use plastics, and is on the advisory board of Conscious Capitalism Washington, D.C., which we're also going to talk about in this conversation. So look, Dan and I could riff for hours. This was an amazing conversation. And at his very core, he is somebody who cares about doing well. He believes in capitalism and he also believes in doing good. And he doesn't believe that those are antonyms. And instead, that if done right, we can be both conscious and capitalistic. But even more than that, this conversation gets into how Dan thinks about running an organization and how he puts people's health first and how he thinks about his role as a leader. So I know you're going to love this conversation with Dan. And without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Dan Simons. Dan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We have some mutual friends. Uh, I have some clients that uh, are, are close with you. I kept hearing your name over and over again. And I've eaten at, at your restaurants quite a bit and always find them delicious. Uh, so thanks for feeding me for, for a bunch of years. Uh, and I'm excited to chat with you today. Where I wanted to start was on your bio. So I went on your website and checked out your bio and you start by talking about failures and instead of successes. So I'm curious as to why that is and uh, even if you want to dive into some of the failures along the way, maybe that will set the table for our conversation today. Success is so easy to talk about and so easy to, to listen to people talk about. And I think it has no value to talk about because success, you know, in my view, right? Uh, the way I see it, is an outcome, you know, to the right of the equals sign. And so the thing to the right of the equals sign is the conclusion. It, if what's interesting is achieving a conclusion, then I think what's interesting are the components of the equation. So I'd rather 
talk about, listen to, learn from, analyze, reflect on, celebrate, cry about, you know, the, the pieces that go in to a result, then, you know, sort of standing back and, and allegedly admiring some result. So that's, that's sort of my view on it. All right, let's go into success and then maybe we'll find out about some of your screw ups along the way. I'm sure we'll love to learn from that. Um, John Wooden had this great Ted talk. I don't think it was a Ted talk when he delivered it, but I guess Ted talk might've purchased it. You know, John Wooden, great quotes all the time. Great book, great author, great coach. But he said, success is defined as peace of mind attained only through self-satisfaction and knowing you made the effort to do the best of which you're capable. How does that land with you? Um, he, he may be a bit more evolved than I am with the comfort of being at peace with failure. I agree um, a lot of the magic is in how you feel about the way you did something and the way you went about it and accepting, you know, what you can and can't accomplish. So I, I get that. Um, I also think for me, failure sucks. I feel it. I'm emotional. I, you know, and when I fail in someone else's eyes, even if I tried really hard and I'm at peace with the effort I put in and I acknowledge my limitations, you know, I can be pretty upset with an outcome. So maybe, you know, I'm not quite at the wooden yoga, uh, you know, Yoda level, but uh, I, I certainly, you know, respect that perspective. Well, I've talked to people who have who spent time with him. He's since passed and they said, oh yeah, he, he wanted to win. And and perhaps it's a it's a nice segue to this idea of conscious capitalism. So Ed Ofterdinger is, uh, I think I said his last name right. I sometimes butcher it, but we've had lunch a few times. I've been to some of the conscious capitalism uh, events. Uh, I think DC got involved with conscious capitalism a few maybe years before the pandemic hit. And then it's, it's probably been a bit of a challenge, but I'd love for you to talk about conscious capitalism, what it is, why you're involved with it. Um, because then I, when I hear you talk about, no, I want to win, like, like failure does hurt. I hear some capitalism in there, but then I know a big part of your journey is also uh, being intentional and conscious as well. So maybe talk about conscious capitalism and why you're involved with that. I, you know, and let me clarify too. I hate failing, but I love and embrace, you know, that the process of failure because all the wins, that's why I don't focus on the wins, right? Because the real story of the wins is they have all of the losses bundled into them. And um, conscious capitalism has given me a vocabulary to help, help frame the way I've always viewed business. I always felt that business, for me, business was like sports. You know, I grew up as an athlete. Um, Dan, what sports? Uh, wrestling and soccer, but wrestling was really my, my thing. Um, and you know, what it taught me is, is just nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to hide. There's no one else to blame. You know, the team is there and supports you, but when you lose, uh, you're out there alone and it's, it's on you. 
and you can either never come back or you can keep coming back and reflect on the losses and it, and, and have it lead to some wins. Um, so conscious capitalism is this fantastic perspective that business and capitalism can be a force for good and can lift up all aspects of society and take people out of poverty and create opportunities. And I think unbridled, unregulated, uncontrolled capitalism is awful. It, it, it feeds the id and the ego and, and the worst in people, um, sort of like athletes who cheat. So, um, you know, golf is sort of a relative honor system sport. Uh, you know, we have referees and umpires that you can, you know, get away with stuff if, if you're a cheater. Business is the same. So uh, you do need referees and you do need umpires and the business world needs regulators and rules and boundaries. For the people who bring a conscience into the sport of business, you can do wonderful things for people. You can improve society and the planet and the world. And I think capitalism, when done consciously, is a, is a powerful force. I want to go back to the wrestling soccer dynamic. I've worked with American University Wrestling a bunch. Uh, so I've learned a lot about the sport. Did you love wrestling? I loved it. I loved it. Um, and when I got to college, um, it was, you know, I went to GW division one wrestling school and, um, I just got my ass kicked and I just wasn't good enough. And I got that taste of sort of, you know, high school hero, college zero. Um, and I didn't last on the team. And I, and that's still part of me loving wrestling. I love doing, I then got into martial arts, you know, for years and loved that. I love the full contact grind. Um, and, you know, wrestling is that permanent reminder for me. There's always someone way better, bigger, faster, stronger, smarter. And, you know, I carry that with me in my business career. I never know what door I'm going to walk through and the people on the other side of that door will be, so much more skilled and it helps to remember that at all times. So the humility that wrestling brought you, but there's another piece that I'm curious about when I work with wrestling teams, it's an individual sport and how you do impacts how the team then does, but it is an individual sport. Um, for you, as I, as I did research on you, you talk about we and team and how you always want to do things with others and you love spending time with other people. What was it like to be in an individual sport, but also have a team component and how did that impact how you see the world? I guess I always felt that I would get knocked down or pinned knocked out alone that was I and then picked up off the mat by the team and that was the we so I always had the courage and I think still do in in you know business or life to go out there and get knocked down there will be a team to pick me up I trust myself to get up, um, 
but it's a lot easier to get up off, you know, to get out from under, to get up off the ground, to, to, to recover when somebody gives you a hand and you look at the pro athletes, you know, you watch the NBA, right? Uh, and, you know, I've got three teenagers. They've been learning it since they were little kids. You know, a teammate goes down, you run over there and you help that teammate up. And it's more than just helping that teammate conserve energy. It's the confirmation that when you go down alone, we lift you up. Um, and I just, I love that. And I've always loved that. So for me, that's, that's wrestling gave me that. So take me to college. You're at George Washington University. You're not good enough to be successful there as a wrestler. What were you thinking as a sophomore in college or a junior in college as far as what the future would hold for you? I, I turned that uh, love of team into work. So I started working in, in bars and restaurants um, as a sophomore, maybe end of freshman year, once you know there was no more wrestling um, for me. And I saw, wow, you know, a Friday night, to run a bar on a Friday night, you need a plan. You got to go into it. You know, you got to know who's where, aces and places, people doing their things. But, you know, the employees have strengths and weaknesses. And when the crowd comes, it's like, it's a challenge. And if the plan is awesome and the team works together, you kick ass together, you get through the tough spots. And then there's the aftermath. And if you're good at it, you know, it's like the post shift, you know, it's like the after game recap and, and it just transitioned for me sports into work. And I, I still see it the same way. Hmm. Did you have a vision for what you wanted to do with the rest of your life? Um, I, I had visions. Um, I always was drawn to entrepreneurship. I, I filed for my first patent idea um, when I was a freshman in college. And this was, you know, not, not pre-computers, but certainly pre-internet. You know, you call a 1-800 number, you get a how to file a patent packet in the mail, you fill it out, you do it all paperwork and you submit it to the USPTO. Um, so I liked, you know, business, innovation, creation. Um, and then once I started working in bars and restaurants, I started sort of thinking, wow, what, you know, what if I had my own place, but it was still in the background that, that thought. And I thought, you know, I was studying international business. My parents aren't from, from this country. And so I, I thought I would do something international with business. Uh, but I really just got hooked on, on the restaurant business. Where are your parents from? Um, my mom was born in Europe as, uh, as her parents fled the Nazis. So, uh, you know, in route to England. So, and my dad was born in London. So both my parents grew up in England and then emigrated here to the U S um, before I was born, but my sisters were born there. My brother and I were born here. So you're one of five, it sounds like one of four, one of four. And where did you grow up? Just north of Boston in a little town called Linfield. Got it. And your mom's family fleeing from the Nazis, did that leave a mark on you and your siblings? Or was it sort of something that you just heard about? Uh, did it impact you in any way? 
It did impact us. I think we were amazed by the stories that, you know, my mom had to share and that her parents had to share and what they went through. And it always, you know, lodged a deep inside of us that there's evil out there and, you know, whatever tribe you belong to can, can make you vulnerable. Um, and I think planted a seed inside of me to always want to, um, you know, help defend people that, that can't defend themselves. Um, you know, it's never, it's never actually far from my mind, the awful stuff that people go through around the world and not just my people, you know, just people. Yeah. Humanity and justice are sort of littered all throughout the, what you are putting out into the universe and as values. Um, and so it, it, I was curious about that. You said something earlier that struck me though. You said when I was working at the bar and the restaurant, you have to have a plan and then the door is open. My dad got into the restaurant industry at one point and he, before that, his business was a subscription business. So the idea of the subscription business is someone pays us. We know we're getting that money in. Then we produce the content. He said, when I got into the restaurant business, it made no sense to me. We had to buy everything in advance and then hope people would walk through the doors. And if they don't, then we're screwed. <laughs> and that was like his very simplistic way of saying, Brian, don't, go in, don't ever go into the restaurant business. But here you are, and I'm thinking about wrestling as a sport. There may not be a more grueling, harder sport from a physical, emotional, mental side that I've worked with. And I've worked with a lot of different athletes. Rowing is another sport where I would say that about swimming is another sport. I would say that about, um, and then you talk about the restaurant business where you just hear it over and over again. Hey, this is a grueling, tough, tough business. Are there parallels for you in those? Um, and how do you think about doing hard things and going toward ecosystems or environments that might be difficult? Hard things aren't really hard things. They're just things. So the more things you can do that I guess, you know, if, if you climb the hard things ladder and you just view them as things, you get conditioned to just doing things. You know, what hill is too big to climb? What punch is too hard to withstand. Um, you know, I look at elite athletes, elite performers in, in any arena, at, you know, and I'm just amazed that people have the ability to simply just keep going. So, you know, is mile 27 in a marathon really harder than mile 25? Well, I don't know, you know, those, some of those folks could have gone for 28 miles. So what, when does it get hardest? You know, I, I think for me, removing that lens of how hard is this? You know, I hear people talk about, well, you know, in business and coaching, you know, we have to be able to have tough conversations. And, you know, what I share with my teams is there is no tough conversation certainly not if you're the one giving the information there can be information that that may be a challenge to receive 
But again, it's a choice of, do I want to view this as hard or do I just want to view this as the assignment? And when you focus on what you have to do, as opposed to the adjectives around what you have to do, it works for me to, to get to the core of the action needed, as opposed to the, you know, the outer, the outer labels or levels of it. As I'm hearing you talk and I, I'm, I'm reading your blog and looking at some of the posts that you've put out there, there's this personal productivity map. There is this desire to maximize that I recognize sort of all over. And even as we talk about John Wooden, we were talking about self-satisfaction and fulfillment, knowing that I did the best I could. But the beginning of that is peace of mind. Uh, so he starts with saying peace of mind. Where do you get peace of mind in your life? From trusting myself that I am allocating my time to the things that are most important to me. So there's 168 hours this week. There's 168 hours next week. There's always 168 hours in a week. Um, so I look at this upcoming, you know, 10,080 minutes that's ahead of me for the next seven days. And I choose what to do with it. And if I choose wisely and I follow my program, and if choosing wisely for me means knowing what my priorities are, what's important, which also means knowing what's not important, um, then I'll do well with those 10,080 minutes. And that, that gives me comfort. Um, like a conversation, you know, that we're having, I'm interested to learn stuff from you. And we were, we were talking before, you know, the show and I was getting to know you and hearing about your story and thinking about your journey. I'm absorbing that. Right. And I'm thinking like, okay, why does this guy do what he does and how has he gotten there? And so, you know, you were kind enough to ask me to come on the show. And I thought to myself, okay, that's X minutes of my time. If I died right at the end of it, and it was the last thing I did, would I have regretted that I was doing this today in this moment? And I think I have my own sort of decision-making process. And I say, no, I'm good with that. And so I do it. And if I say like, oh God, why would I have done that? Then I don't do it. So let's riff a little bit. So I, I love the idea of being and becoming and that when I listen to you and I hear you, I hear someone who's becoming, I'm a lifelong learner. I want to grow. Brian, I want to learn from you. I want to become, I want to get better. I want to improve the humility of the wrestler. Like I always need to train. There's no lazy wrestlers. Like they don't, there's no, you, you don't get to go on the mat if you haven't put the work in. Um, there are different degrees of work ethic, of, of course, but like this idea that you are someone who values becoming what I'm most curious. I'm trying to get to with you is like, where are you being like, when, when are you just being, um, because there's no question you're a maximizer. Like I've got this guy maximized. He's talking about 168 hours. And by the way, I'm going to talk about winning the week. Like I love the idea of 168 hours instead of 24. And I even thought about, oh, I'm going to write a book about 168 hours. And then I looked and someone already wrote a book about 168 hours. Of course they did. And they got a TED talk and it's great. And it's awesome. But I think too often we say win the day or win the morning. And for me, that can be exhausting. And, and like, well, there's some mornings where I want to be with my kids. There's other mornings I want to do this or that. We can get in routines and all that good stuff. 
but the being and becoming like wisdom is different than maximizing. Like, where are you being? Where are you just not thinking about the minutes, not thinking about 168 hours, just there, just being like, when does that exist for you? That's the, that is the beauty for me of knowing where the minutes are. I have time to just not do anything, which is sometimes for me, like the favorite doing something. And so, you know, when I would, um, for a couple of my kids, I coached, you know, when they were, uh, you know, little league and playing baseball and, you know, being out on the field with the kids and spending that time, um, there's, you know, time with my dog. There's when my wife, Susie and I just hang out, you know, this morning, I knew what my time obligations were. I knew about when I'd open my eyes, I knew my dog would jump up on my bed and then I can just lay there. So, you know, it's a, I'm, for me, personal productivity isn't about stuffing the most things into 168 hours. It's about using the time with intention. So, so it's, it's, that's what I, what I'm maximizing is the intention. I'm, I don't see myself as busy. I think I, I hate the word busy. I, I try not to use it for me. Busy is sort of like out of control and it's not a choice. I, you know, I know it's like a little wonky, but you know, I'm like effectively allocated and, and I'm allocating it, including time to like wander around. You know, I'm married an artist. My wife is amazing. She sees the world so differently than I do. And I said on our wedding day, um, I want to learn to walk through the world like you do. You know, she stops and smells the roses sort of permanently and studies them artistically. And that's how she goes through life. So I have learned to slow down. Um, and, and that's why this allocation approach includes allocating the slowdown. So I, I don't know how that all sounds, but that's what rattles around in my head. I love the appropriate allocation or whatever the phrase is there. Cause I, I have the same response when someone says someone, 30 minutes ago said to me, Oh, you busy. You busy. How's work. You busy. And like, man, no one should go through life. Just busy. Like that doesn't yeah. sound too exciting to me. Um, so, but when I emailed you the first, the first time we had gotten connected, you said something that, that struck me. You said, I have my year mapped out for the remainder of 2021 and I know what I need to do and how I need to do it. So the variable for me is discipline. Talk about discipline a bit. I, I start discipline with awareness. So I, 2020 and 2021 have been um, newly challenging years for restaurants, for, for individuals, for me as a person, as a father, as a leader at work. You know, we have just gotten our asses kicked. Um, so 
I have to know what I have to accomplish going forward that, you know, this, the rest of this year is a make it or break it six months for our company. Um, included in what I have to accomplish is I got to take a couple of vacations. I got to help my 17 year old do college visits. Got to make sure my 15 year old doesn't feel, you know, lost as the middle child, you know, cause, cause he's one of three. And so for me and Oliver, he's 15, he's a sneakerhead. He's into entrepreneurship. I got to spend time with him on what he loves. My little one is 12. So when I say, I know what I need to accomplish, I first need to know what matters to me. Then I need to sort of rank those things in some semblance of urgent or important. And then I got to say no to everything else that doesn't fit that, that definition. How do you say no? Uh, politely and firmly is how I try to hold myself accountable. Um, I went through a phase or, you know, sort of early when we had started the company and the restaurant started to, you know, get noticed a little bit, I guess. And I started to get invited to all sorts of things, you know, maybe like better parties, better meetings, better events, whatever. And I would say yes. And then I would see things on my calendar and I would have regret that I had calendared it. And then I realized, you know, what was it? It was like a lack of discipline. It was, it was my ego saying, Oh, I want to say, yes, I think I want to be there. I want to go to this thing or I want to, you know, I never could have gotten this invite before and now I get this invite. So I want to go. And then I realized I don't really give a shit about most of that. And I kind of got back on my discipline program of, you know, I call it the graceful. No, it's like, you know, I, you get a question, you reflect on it, sift it through how you rank what's important, you know, how I rank what's important to me. And then it's like, Hey, thanks so much for inviting me. Um, you know, and sometimes I have a sort of strange reply, you know, thanks so much for inviting me. That's just not a priority for me. And I end up getting invited to less things over time, you, you know, but great. It's one less invitation I have to say no to, which saves me 17 seconds on an email. So, um, but I think you always have to be polite and you always have to really reflect on what should be a yes and what should be a no. And sometimes you have to ask people, you know, how important is what you're asking me, right? Cause maybe someone needs help. And so, my selfish answer might be no, but my true priority answer is yes, because one of my priorities is, is trying to help people. Mm. You know, I can relate to this. So I got into my industry to help people. Like it's in my mission it is hundred percent. Like I am in the helping industry. And when you have a career in sports psychology, it's, it's kind of a niche thing. So anyone that knows anybody who's interested in sports psychology, it's like, oh, call Brian and go have a conversation with him. And I always said yes to everybody. And even I went further than that. They would say, hey, they'd send me a note in an email. I'd say, hey, let's, let's have a phone call if you're not in the area or let's go grab a cup of coffee if you're local because I wanted to actually get to know them and connect them. Well, fast forward 10 years later and all of a sudden I look at my calendar. I'm like, holy crap, I'm 
loading my calendar with these same conversations over and over again, and they are not filling me up and energizing me. And I've come to think about it this way, is that I had to say yes in order to earn the right to say no. Um, and I also have systems and mechanisms in place where I can say yes, but on my, my time and the way that I want to do it. And that's okay too. But for me, I said yes to so many things early in my career. And as a result, I think I had things open to me that helped me. Now I can be more picky about how I choose my time. Um, but I think there is um, almost this idea of when you're starting out, like say no to things, say no, no, no. And I'm like, no, when you're first starting, like just go say yes to everything. Go see, because then you'll figure out what events you want to go to, what events you don't want to go to. And the only way you'll know is if you actually say yes, what clients you enjoy working with, what clients you don't. And oh, by the way, when you're really starting out in a profession like mine, you kind of have to say yes to everything if you want to survive. Um, and so I think yes and no is such an interesting thing. And what I've, I'm so curious about how people say no, because I'm absolutely wired to say yes. Um, and I think it, it becomes harder to say no, especially if you got to where you are in part because you said yes to things. Does that resonate with you or land with you in any way? It, it does, Brian. And, and what, what really you're highlighting, this is, the, this is why there needs to be a big caution flag when anyone gives anyone else advice. That's why I try not to I don't think I'm giving advice, right? Like we're having a conversation. I'm sharing, you know, whatever information that I have. And, and you're right. You know, you ask an individual about something like yes and no. And, you know, my answer really is about where I am today. Your reflection was much more insightful. And if someone were listening and thinking about it from the advice perspective, you know, Yes and no, you know, first starts with where you are and what you're trying to accomplish, right? So, so I think that that is a very good point. Um, but I'm curious, did you, yeah, you said a lot of yeses. It got you somewhere. It sort of gives you the right to say no. But how do you reconcile still like the, I can tell you have a big heart, right? And so and you've studied how the brain works, which means you understand how, you know, the, the brain and the heart and all of these emotions, right, that, that run through the computer in our skull. Um, how do you feel when you simply have to say no to someone who does need your help and it just isn't realistic for what you've decided? Like, how do you feel about that? The brain and the heart and the gut and like the gut and there's research about the connection between the gut and the brain, which is fascinating in its own right. And I find that I often do go to the gut for certain things, um, but not if I haven't done the brain work first. Um, and so I think just using your gut without the brain can, can be uh, tough. What I've done is create systems so that I'm not actually saying no necessarily. Um, so I talked to a guy who was the CEO of Young Presidents Organization, YPO, and I asked him this question and I said, his name's Scott. I said, Scott, you probably get hit up all the time from people looking for advice. You uh, were the CEO of this massive organization that has presidents all over the world. Um, and people probably want to connect with you to then connect with somebody else probably. So what do you do? And he's like, once a week, I've got a time slot for that. And so I plug it in once a week. And so I started doing five o'clocks on Mondays. That's my time slot. I call it my mentoring time slot. 
So someone emails me and they want to pick my brain about executive coaching or sports psychology. Cool. Five o'clock Monday. Like that's, that's my time. And why five o'clock Monday? Well, um, it's the beginning of the week, so I'm not going to cancel on them probably down the road. If something else comes up that is more important, you were talking about important and urgent. I love the idea of the Eisenhower matrix is I'm sure what you're referencing there. Mm -hmm. For those that aren't familiar with it, it's an amazing matrix that I use with most of my clients just to think about what do we delegate? What do we decide, et cetera, et cetera. For me, Monday at five, a, um, I'm not going to cancel on them, which it's easy to do because you know, it's a lower, um, it's lower on the important thing. So Monday at five, nothing else is probably going to take its place. Number two, if my kids uh, at five o'clock are coming upstairs and interrupting us, okay. Like it's not a podcast, right? Like I, it's, it's not a big deal if they come upstairs at five o'clock. And then the last part is like, I shut my day off at six o'clock. Um, most days there are things that come up and um, games that I go to and work that I do speaking and there's stuff that comes up beyond six, but most work weekdays, I want to be home for dinner at six o'clock. And so I know I'm like, all right, that's the last meeting of the day. So to answer your question, it, it almost isn't even a no, it's just um, for the mentoring stuff on my time and when I want to do it. There are things that I say no to um, that I turn down, whether it's working with people or, um, and then for that, I refer out. So I really believe like I'm giving someone a better option that's often honestly less expensive and um, it's serving them in that way. And so I still feel like my job is to serve and to help others, but I, I think I've created more intention around it. And by the way, this is 2021. This didn't exist in 2020 for me. Like this is new. So I'll let you know how it goes. I have no clue how it's going to, how it's going to work out, but I don't know that answer sort of. It does. Yeah. You built a system and you find a way to say yes to something as opposed to saying no to everything. And I'm, I think that is a good mantra when someone needs something just because you can't solve all their problems and give them everything you can give them something and by helping someone with something and to your point sometimes it's a web link it's a referral to someone else it's just the dignity of a response it's the acknowledgement of i can't help you with what you need but I can acknowledge and validate that what you need is real. And here's two minutes of guidance or, or, or 17 seconds of typing in a response. And that in itself can be really valuable. I, I just think that you can always give something. You hit on something big. So let's talk about ghosting and um, whether that's not showing or not responding to an email. Look, everybody's different. And what I've learned is that some people are really bad with email and that's just their reality. And so I don't even take it personally if someone doesn't respond to an email. But Adam Grant, who's written best-selling books and charges an arm and a leg for speaking gigs, um, like he responds to emails. And um, I've known plenty of people that have a lot going on that respond to emails. What I've come to understand for myself is that it's actually an unfair advantage for me to just respond to people. And, and to your point, sometimes all they're looking for is a link. So they don't even necessarily need a phone call. They just need maybe a book um, recommendation. And 
for me, I like if someone doesn't respond to me, that's their prerogative. They can decide what they do with their time. And maybe they're out in the mountains for two weeks and they're disconnected. So like, honestly, that's kind of beautiful. Like that's more power to them. Um, but what I've realized is like, I'm pretty responsive. I use something called superhuman um, to make sure that I don't uh, miss, don't lose out on emails and actually help me organize my emails. And I pay for that service every single month to make sure that I'm responsive because it's something I care about. And there was a time where I noticed I was slipping on my responses and I was like, that's not good enough, Brian. So for me, that's something I cared about. But if someone else is prioritizing being in nature or being away and in the sports world, especially like a lot of people in sports don't have a calendar, don't have email. Like they just operate at a different cadence than maybe the rest of the business world does. So I've come to recognize like, where are my unfair advantages? And, and, and also what do I value and lean into that? So that's worked for me. I want to shift the spotlight back to you um, because I, like you're, you're on my podcast. So you, you got to ask a question. Congrats. You, you got it. Um, you got me talking. Um, but I, I want to find out something from you, which is I mentioned my dad and sort of saying, Hey, the restaurant industry is not a great industry. Do you think of it that way? When people say, Hey, stay away from the restaurant industry. Um, do how do you think about the restaurant industry as a business? Your dad was onto something. Um, it is an inefficient business. It is, um, you know, the, the ratio of, uh, labor to revenue is, you know, you kind of need one person to cook one hamburger. It's not, you know, you compare that to kind of the, the ratio of leverage on productivity that you get in tech or lots of other things. Um, but you know, my dad told me do what you love and the money will come or it won't come, but it won't matter because you'll be doing what you love. So the opinion about the restaurant business is sort of irrelevant because if you love it, do it. If you don't love it, don't do it. Like my brother is a technologist, super smart programmer, you know, has, you know, been, you know, wrote his first software program when he was, you know, 12. Um, he does what he loves. He loves that. He's been doing it his whole life. If he didn't love it, just because he's good at it, he shouldn't, you know what I mean? He shouldn't do it, but he does love it. And I can see how well it has served him. So, I love the business I'm in. People are like, oh, but the hours and the risk and the, yeah, but those are kind of like, those are lower down on the sort of assessment of the situation. What's at the top is like, I love doing this. If you don't love the restaurant business, fuck, why would you do it? Bussing tables, cleaning bathrooms, people are mean to you. There's all of this, all of these problems. But if you love it, it's like, you know, like, so be it. Right. Like I, I embrace it all. So that's really my view of it. What do you love about it? It is a ladder and a, and a platform for people. You know, I know that people think that I should say that I love the food. I love uh, serving the guest. I love hospitality. I love the beverage. I really like all those things. 
What I love is that this is a business for profit that has a ladder with a rung reaching down to, in essence, the, the lowest socioeconomic levels in society. Um, and you can extend a hand and a rung on the ladder, immigrants, returning citizens who've been incarcerated, you know, people who've just hit life's most difficult mental health challenge. And when people need to climb up this industry, you know, we help each other, we work together and it, like sports, if you're good at it, your teammates like you, right? It's not about where you come from and do you look like each other and do you have this thing? Like if you add a guy onto your sports team and he or she is awesome, you psyched. And the restaurant business is like that. And so you can go from washing dishes to making $100,000 a year. You can build new skills. Um, so I, I like it for what it builds for people. And then the team and the, the feeling of victory and winning and helping that comes out of it. I don't think there's any better industry for all of these things. So that's why I love it. Do I like, you know, the party of it? Um, it's not really a party when you're working it. You need to clean it up after everybody else. But I do like other people having a good time. I like busting tables. It's fun. It's interesting. There are some parallels from my experience in the sports world because the business of sports is a very tricky, strange, cutthroat, transactional business. Um, and when you hear athletes say it's a business, it's, it's because they might have gotten traded or they might've gotten cut. Mm. Uh, like that doesn't really happen in a lot of other businesses. It's not like you're saying, Hey, we're going to trade, you know, our dishwasher to, the, to this restaurant for a player to be named later in cash. Like it, it just, it, it's a, it, the business is, is tricky. And a lot of times people in sports lose sight of the game and the passion and the childhood memories that you have from kicking a soccer ball or wrestling is not really a good analogy, but shooting a basketball um, and, and so there, it's interesting as I hear you talk about it. Um, I'm curious though, you said something earlier that struck me. You said the next six months are paramount for our survival. And so we're recording this in July and a year ago, um, I saw you in an interview saying, yeah, we're, we're laying off 1100 people a little over a year ago, whatever the date was, maybe a year and four months ago, something like that. Can you talk about what this experience has been like for you going through a pandemic and having to close a restaurant or I know pivoting is something that restaurants had to do, but for a while there, it was just, you know, you can't do anything. Like what was it like for you personally to carry the weight of that um, on your shoulders? Scary, uh, you know, worrisome, anxiety causing the, the scariest part was knowing that we were both asking our people to still come to work, yet creating the opportunity for people to come to work. Our people wanted to, to work, yet the scary part was I knew that as they made that choice and we made that choice, someone could get sick and die. You know, that's fucking scary. Uh, to think about being responsible and participating in something that could, you know, have that result. And 
you know, slightly less scary, but still scary is if we don't stay in business, where are my people going to work? How are they going to afford food, medicine for their kids, pay their rent? So that those, you know, there was definitely um, a lot of angst with that. I say that the, you know, we have made it through to where we are now. But, and as you said, you know, it's July 2021 right now. When I hear people say the pandemic is over, uh, maybe yours is, good for you. Uh, but lots of the world is not over. There are people in this country where it is not over. And I can tell you as of July 2021, there are a lot of restaurants and businesses attached to restaurants um, for whom this thing is not over. A, a, a good buddy of mine who's a, a chef in town said, um, you know, the pandemic itself was like the surgery. And now this is the rehab and the recovery. And so that is the surgery. It sounds like the most dramatic. That's not the hard part. The hard part is the recovery, the healing. We might look okay on the outside, but our insides are torn up. Systems, people, employees, wages. We still have people who, you know, are home, uh, you know, when someone has symptoms and dealing with COVID and the industry has been turned on its head. The supply chains are wonky. So this recovery, um, you will see restaurants that are open today and you will think they have made it and they will be gone permanently, you know, six or eight months from now. So the, the recovery is fraught with peril. Um, and we've got a lot to do and we're faced with a lot of forks in the roads and there are a lot of decisions and if we don't make enough of the right ones um you know our business or other businesses won't make it i want to shift gears a little bit i have a million questions on that front and maybe we'll talk another day about those questions but um i want to go more macro um you have a company constitution which i thought was really interesting talk about that company constitution um, why you created it and how that might have helped you over the past year and a half or so and guide you and, and shape your decision-making. I've always thought talk is cheap and easy. Writing something down feels more of a commitment and then actions are where the magic is. So my partner and I, Feel, feel really strongly about, you know, the way we do business and culture and people and why we do what we do and how we do what we do. And so we had learned from a mentor, his name's Tom Dakotas, br brilliant, you know, business thinker. Um, we had learned a, a construct of how to document a company's vision and connect it to the actions that, that a company takes and the systems a company's, company builds. So we rewrote our constitution, Mike and I together and with some of our team, we sort of painstakingly um, wordsmithed it and, and tried to get from our thoughts to the written word. And to this day, Mike and I still teach this class as a three hour class as part of, you know, adding new folks to the company. Um, it's a living, breathing document. It can evolve as we, as you know, like you said, we're lifelong learners. So having a written constitution for us then connects to how and who we hire. 
how and who we uh, or how we govern ourselves and deal with challenges and um it's a really powerful and effective approach to leading a business and the constitution which is what we call this document um it has more authority in the company than i do or than mike does and we want it to be about that not about what my mood might be one day or my biases one day and you go back to the constitution and it it really helps govern did anything change in the last year and a half based on this sort of crisis that the business was in um that had to evolve for 2020 and 2021 nothing hmm. um it served us interestingly i was i was i we taught a constitution class last week to, to maybe 15 new folks that we'd hired um and it always has a revision date you know we make amendments to it essentially and, and those are those are called out and the last one uh was fall of 2019 um and and you know if our company has done well through the pandemic through the pandemic by however somebody wants to sort of have that measurement it is because of the strength of the culture and so with um you know equality equity justice the planet dignity people uh, these aren't new topics for us, you know, they're, they're deep in this constitutional document and have been since we, you know, opened the first restaurant in 2008. You mentioned your partner, Mike, but you also have other partners. Can you talk a little bit about partnership and specifically founding farmers and the idea and the concept and then what partnership looks like and also what it means to you? <clears throat> I hate being alone. So it's a little secret about me. Um, even things that I love doing, there are none of them I love doing alone. Um, I love snowboarding and skiing. And even on a great powder day with perfect conditions, I, I wouldn't go out alone. It's always for me, my whole life, maybe because I'm the youngest, I, I don't know what it is, but um, like, doing it alone isn't doing it at all for for me uh winning alone isn't winning at all for me so i think i'm born to be part of a team i'm born to be in a partnership um I, i've never been trying to like finish first i guess unless it's a tie you know or like my teammates and i i don't mind defeating other teams i actually love that that's always fine with me um so you know mike and i have worked together i'm 50. we started working together when i was 24. he was my boss um and we've been now business partners for uh, 17 18 years so that relationship grows you know if that relationship didn't grow then how do you go from you know employee boss to to partners um and we got lucky and connected with the north dakota farmers union um, they wanted to, to find a way to advocate more on behalf of independent American family farmers, figure out a way to get upstream in the, or downstream in the supply chain. You know, they grow the food, right? It all starts with them, but they don't, they get a tiny fraction of the food dollar. Um, and Brian, man, I can tell you, these are good people, you know, stereotypes often do hold true. And, uh, these farmers from North Dakota are, 
salt of the earth, the handshake matters, trust is real. They say what they mean. They think in a multi-generational long-term view. Um, and maybe some of the other farm stereotypes that folks on the coasts might have are not true. If you, you think there is anything, um, you know, simple or lacking complex education or awareness or any, like if you think this is kind of a hokey pokey thing, uh, those those stereotypes are wrong. So we formed a partnership. We brought our restaurateurship. They brought their farming and their vision. Uh, and we formed an incredibly equal win-win interests aligned partnership. And that's what Farmers Restaurant Group is that, you know, the North Dakota Farmers Union Lots of other individual farmers and, and farm entities, some other individual investors, um, and, and me and Mike. Has your model been replicated by others? Not yet. Um, there, well, the Minnesota Farmers Union, who also uh, has some ownership in our restaurants, is trying to do something with a local restaurateur in Minnesota. Their plans have been a bit derailed by the pandemic. Uh, but they have a vision. I get a lot of phone calls. I tried to mentor other folks who want to do it. Um, there was um, the World Farmers Organization had done some outreach uh, in West Africa, and there was a, a small farmer there. Um, you know, it's not what you thought in your question, but you can teach farmers around the world to set up a roadside stand and actually cook some food. You know, don't just sell an ear of corn, but but grill it and season it and sell it and you've added value and make more money. Uh, and so we've, we have influenced some stuff, you know, in far flung places, but to my knowledge, there's, there's no one yet. And I hope there are more who's gotten it quite as, um, you know, robust as we have. When we, before we started recording, I said, is there anything you want me to lean into? And you said, I really enjoy talking about mental health in the workplace. So I just want to give you some time here to, to riff on what you've learned about mental health in the workplace uh, why is that something that you think needs to be focused on and emphasized and prioritized? Uh, so just talk about mental health and how you all think about it. Someone taught me uh, many years ago that mental health is just health. And that, you know, just resonated with me so clearly. You know, if someone shows up at work with their arm in a sling, you don't hand them 10 plates and demand that they carry them. Well, when someone shows up to work, you know, so depressed that the biggest accomplishment was sort of getting out of bed and getting to work, why would you ask them to perform at some elite high level? It is as stupid as asking the person who shows up with two arms in a sling to, you know, get your ass in the kitchen and run food. Um, I always thought that the bosses I had who said, you know, leave your problems at the door. You're here now, y you know, leave all that stuff at the door and like, let's get to work. I'm like, that's so weird. How, you know, and I'm lucky. I happen to, you know, have had a stable upbringing, and you know, uh, I've had a, you know, a good run with with mental health. I have my own issues, uh, as does, by the way, every single person, every single person listening to your podcast, every single person on the planet. Um, you know, what makes us human 
is the imperfection of the way our brain works. And so how that manifests, I think should just be embraced in the workplace. Like, hey man, what's making you limp today? You know, like what's preventing you from being elite today? Let's work on it. And so, um, you know, before our time, Brian, right? There was this stigma about cancer. If someone got cancer, you wouldn't tell anyone in the neighborhood, you know? And it was- uh, AIDS, I think of AIDS. Yeah, you think of AIDS and you're supposed to keep these things a secret. I'm like, hey, like my team, everybody that I work with closely uh, knows that I have some, you know, mental issues around food and body dysmorphia and like food obsession and negative thoughts and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, I tell my people, I, cause I need help with some stuff. Um, and you know, my business partner is great. He will move food away from me. He will like not have things on the table cause he understands that there can be a thought track that happens in my mind that is distracting and can kind of make me a bit of a mess in those moments. So I figure talk about it, you know, shout it from the rooftop, stand up in front of your team and say like, Hey, here's my struggle today. What's it matter if it's a, you know, torn meniscus or, you know, obsessive compulsive uh, disorder or overwhelming generalized anxiety. Cool. Great. You're human. Let's work on it. And then let's, you know, let's get to the mission, but first let's get healthy. There's no elite teams without really fully healthy team members. And if mental health is health, let's dig into it and let's get to elite. So I was with somebody on Tuesday who's in the hotel industry and a worker in, in, the, in a, a local hotel that you and I probably have both been to. I know I've been there. I'm sure you've been there too. And I asked him like, how's it going? He's like, it's really difficult. We don't have enough workers. Like I am working three jobs in the hotel and I go, well, why, why aren't people, why aren't you able to find me? He's like, it's simple. They're making money off the government and they're not coming back to work. I'm curious to get your thoughts on that, given everything that we've talked about today and that you're in it and I'm not in it. Um, but as we sit here today, like, how do you think about getting people back to work? Um, they might have fears of COVID. They might have fears of a vaccine. They might have their kid at home. I mean, there's so many dynamics that are at play right now for people. How do you, how do you balance that with running a business and needing to have people in your restaurants? It is a very difficult time for the people doing the work every day. All our restaurants are short-staffed. The demand is high. The guest expectations are like, hey, we're open, we're back you know, get me my food on time and perfect. Otherwise I will complain about you. Okay, fine. Thus that doesn't solve our issue, right? So de demand is a good thing. Expectations are fine. So what you heard from that hotel worker is true in, in certainly all of my restaurants. Um, I don't believe the Republican talking point that the whole problem is because people are staying home getting government checks. And I don't believe the Democrat talking point that the whole problem is that employers um, suck and don't pay well. As usual, those two left and right talking points aren't honest and comprehensive. There is truth in both of them. 
So you can push those topics together. You touched on them. If there's no childcare workers and the price of childcare is double what it used to be, then how are some of my employees going to afford coming back to work if they're upside down on childcare? So there are real issues out there. I do think these things are, each of them are true. It's that whole recipe that comes together and my team will get through it by trying to be an employer of choice, trying to care for the whole person. Um, I still have people that we lose today. You know, yesterday I had a guy, you know, decide not to come back to work and he's like, it's not worth it. You know, the H like the air conditioning is, is not working. Yeah. Well, you can't get technicians to fix the AC. So we'll get through it uh, with a lot of heart, a lot of head, some innovation uh, and taking care of our people. And it's just one more battle. Um, I, I, and, and so I'm confident we'll get through it. And it is legit to say it sucks for the workers and the leaders of those workers, not myself, like, you know, our general managers, our managing partners that are in there every day. Um, and we will get through it. So where I'd love to close is to give you a platform to promote what you're doing with our last straw to promote the restaurants uh, and to promote anything else that you think deserves a megaphone and that people should be more aware of that maybe they're not aware of. I would love it if people would dine in my restaurants, um, you know, and I could talk about our brand names, you know, founding farmers, farmers, fishers, bakers, farmers, and distillers. What I really want people to do is dine in restaurants and be nice to the staff. I don't, it doesn't have to be my restaurants, just wherever you go, even if the staff isn't fitting your definition of good, just be kind to them. They've got kids at home or they have their struggles. They are there showing up to earn and to serve and they are trying. So that's really my soapbox point. And then as you go through restaurants, you know, vote with your dollars, pick the restaurants that you think line up with your own personal values, the way a restaurant treats its people, the way a restaurant treats the planet. Um, I could go on forever about single use plastics. It's a big topic. I would ask anybody listening to make it a small topic. Just stop buying toothpaste tubes and instead buy toothpaste bits from a company like Bite. And you just won't contribute those plastic toothpaste tubes that are gonna be on the planet for another you know, 10,000 years. Like just pick one item in your house and replace plastic with glass. Pick, just pick a thing, you know, say no to the straw, whatever it is. Just pick a thing, do your part, be mindful and support the folks that are really, uh, you know, trying to serve you and work on behalf of, of the values and the principles that line up for you as an individual. And that's kind of what I got. Well, Dan, we could talk all day, but I know you've got intentional stuff that I'm sure you want to do. And I do as well, including eating lunch, which is important for me. Um, but I just want to thank you, first of all, on, on the plastic front, uh, for those that are unfamiliar, you see all these commercials now about cars, car companies committing to going electric. And there's something similar going on in a lot of uh, our, our states when it comes to plastic. And so George Washington University, the university you went to, just pledged 
to get rid of single-use plastic, I think by maybe 2022. I forget exactly when it was. You probably know better than me. And and Dan's and their nonprofit has been at, at really the, the forefront and and trying to challenge how people are thinking about using plastic, uh, not just in the restaurant industry, but in all over the world, really. And and we we can do better, and and we will do better. And it's thanks to people like you for for making sure that it's top of mind. I didn't know about it. And then I started working with a client who is working on doing canned water and trying to change the world when it comes to plastic water bottles. And he really explained to me what was going on. And I'm fortunate to get to work with him and his company is doing amazing things on, on the waterfront. Um, I also want to just say you have on your website that your mission is a life with no regrets for yourself and everybody around you. And for me, I'm so thankful that we were connected uh, by mutual friends. And um, hopefully this was an hour of your time that you you don't regret. And I look forward to bumping into you around town or grabbing a coffee or just spending time being with you. And maybe we can learn from each other. And I love how intentional you are about your culture, your leadership, and also how much you care about the people that you serve in multiple ways. So if people want to find out more about you, whether it's social media or your website, um, where can they do that? Um, I have my own website, which is dansimonssays.com. And then all of our restaurants you can link to at farmersrestaurantgroup.com. Beautiful. I really, I really appreciate you having me on the show, you know, chatting with you, learning from you, listening, being part of it. Um, it's fun for me. And so it wasn't an hour. It was 67 minutes that we've spent together today uh, and worth worth everyone. And I look forward to having a drink and an appetizer with you sometime soon. Yeah, I went over. I apologize. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levitson. LinkedIn is the other place I play at Brian Levitson. And you can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Dan, thanks for coming on. Appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode jam. For me, personal productivity isn't about stuffing the most things into 168 hours. It's about using the time with intention. So, so it's it's that's what I what I'm maximizing is the intention. I'm I don't see myself as busy. I think you, I, I hate the word busy. I, I try not to use it. For me, busy is sort of like out of control and it's not a choice.